Luke chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 39 through 45. I've called this a tale of two women, Elizabeth and, and Mary, just so you know where we're at in this. I mean, what you have with the writings of Luke, which is Luke and Acts, is, um, is the fact that God had made a promise at the dawn of man when sin entered the world, and we got this universal problem called sin and death. And God, because of his great love, made this decision to not leave us at the mercy of sin and death. And there was a promise made that he would send a redeemer, a messiah, a deliverer. And what we're reading in in Luke and we'll get into in, in Acts is God keeping that promise. He is the promise keeper. And it starts even before the birth of Jesus. It starts with the birth of John the Baptist. And we've kind of gone through that. But now we're at a place in in chapter 1 where not only is Elizabeth six months pregnant pregnant with John the Baptist, Mary is pregnant as well, and there's a visit that the two have, and that's kind of where where we are this morning. So let's look at Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 45 here now, the Word of God. Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as The voice of your greeting sounded in my ears. The babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we know that by your divine spirit, by your divine will, your infinite wisdom you have chosen to reveal to us this encounter between these two women. And we do pray this morning as we examine it that that we would be able to, according to your wisdom, extract from this encounter that which you would have us extract, that we would learn what you would have us learn, know what you would have us know, that we might have a higher opinion, a more august understanding of the God who saved us, And that we might glean from the wisdom of these two women in terms of the way they responded to being involved in this great redemption. So we pray, Father, that you would grant us this wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're new to Southern California, this may not be a surprise to you, but there are very few high schools in Southern California that can boast the athletic dominance of the Roman Catholic high school, modern day. Modern day. I have to say, I've always enjoyed watching some of our more local teams get a win over this powerhouse. I try not to bring up, you know, let's, we got to beat those Catholics. But there's something else that has always nagged me when I've stepped onto the campus of Modern Day, and that is their name, Modern Day, in case you don't know, you know, Latin or Greek. It means Mother of God. 
Uh, and I have to ask myself, does God actually have a mother? Now, look, at I don't, I don't want to overly argue my point because the church council of Ephesus in, in 431 got together, and that's where the term came from. So, so provided we understand the context here, the, the term mother of God is, can be a legitimate term. Now, I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but at that council, they were dealing with a heresy called Nestorianism, this idea that if we understand, and I think it's important for us to understand this, that in the Trinity, there's one God, three persons. In Christ, there's one person with two natures. Let's not get, I don't want to go too far into that, but that's orthodoxy. And the problem with Nestorianism, they're going, no, no, there's two persons, not one person. Two people with two natures. And so they were dealing with that. And so in that council, they came up with, you know, Mary is the mother of God. Now that gets a little confusing because we have to recognize that in a sense that's true, but in another sense it's not true. The difficulty here is, in the, you know, part of my goal is to help you become better at reading your Bibles. And uh, I do hope that you all have a regular Bible reading regimen and um, that when I mention passages in the Bible, you're familiar with them and kind of are looking for answers to what the Bible means. But this is kind of one of those things that's a, kind of a big deal in terms of trying to understand our scriptures because the Bible doesn't always make the distinction clear. This idea of Jesus, truly God, truly man, you got the God, you got the man, well, which, which is it talking about? And so oftentimes in the Bible, the Bible will refer to Jesus without making clear which part of Jesus are we talking about. Matter of fact, our, our confession goes that they go out of their way to kind of help us delineate that problem. Chapter 8 of the Westminster Confession reads that which is proper to one nature, right? either the divine nature or the human nature, is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. Well, what, what are they talking about here? I think an example, I, for me anyways, the example that I struggled with was in Acts 20, 28, where you read that God purchased the church with his own blood. Now, maybe you don't read your Bible in such a way as to struggle with that. I read it, and I'm like, like, because God is spirit. God doesn't have blood. So how did he purchase it with his own blood? And that there is an example of this passage of the Westminster Confession that we need to understand, because the Bible is not a systematic theology always making those distinctions. God doesn't have blood, and I would say God does not have a mother unless we understand that term in light of its historic theological significance. Mary is the mother of Jesus, right? So when you talk about Jesus, right away your mind is truly God, truly man. But she is the mother of Jesus in terms of her substance, the, the human nature of, of Christ, her humanness. God utilized her for the humanness of Jesus, 
At the same time, Jesus is God, which is not of the substance of Mary. Now, I don't know if I've lost everybody at this point, but those distinctions are really important distinctions to make. Having said that, biblical references to Mary include the one we're currently reading here in Luke 1 and 2, and the similar story in Matthew, you know, at the nativity, the birth of Christ. We see her in the wedding at Cana. We see her attempt to speak to Jesus while he's teaching, where she's identified as Jesus' mother. They're like, hey, your mother's here. We see her at the cross, right, with John, when Jesus is like, you need to take care of my mom. And then we see her in Acts 114, where she's named as part of the church. I think it would be a mistake to relegate Mary to an insignificant character in Scripture. I think she's very relevant in Scripture. She's very prominent in Scripture. Yet, the theology derived from Scripture of all these accounts is relatively minimal. Generally speaking, she is asking a question of Jesus, or she's identified as the mother of Jesus. What we will see, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture coming up, is the Magnificat, and the fact that probably a teenager, she knows her Scriptures really well, and has a a beautiful expression in terms of what the fruit of her womb will actually, actually accomplish. But the deep theology around Mary really has to do with what we talked about last week, and that was the virgin birth. I mean, that's, that is her primary role in terms of this, that, that the child will be born of a virgin. John, who wrote maybe word-wise as much as Paul, you know, you wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote Revelation, he wrote 1st, 2nd through John, John wrote a lot. John does not write about Mary. Peter, the first supposedly pope, does not write about Mary. And Paul only writes about Mary by extension, where he's talking about Jesus being born of a woman. So we don't see a lot of, if you will, biblical ink dedicated to Mary, especially in terms of theology. Yet, and I just feel a responsibility to do this, and again, we're not going to take, take a deep dive on this, but I think it's a really important for us as we're like looking at Mary to have kind of a working knowledge of this person in Scripture. So with that minimal amount of Scripture dedicated to Mary, we still see the 19th century Saint Alphonsus de Liguori managing to write an 800-page book about Mary. By the way, he wrote it in the 1890s, I think. It was reprinted in the 1930s. But you can still buy it. You can Google it. You can go to Amazon. It's still there. And that book continues to be the Roman Catholic gold standard when it comes to the life of Mary in the life of the Christian. Now, what I'm going to do here is is just give you a few things out of the table of contents. We're not going to talk about it. I'm just going to show you because I have another point I want to make. And again, it has to do with how we read our Bibles. But here are things we see in St. Alphonsus' 
book. Mary, the queen, mother of mercy. Mary, our mother, and her great love for us. Mary, who renders death sweet to her servants. Mary, the hope of all. Mary, to whom we cry. Mary, who protects those who invoke her. Mary, whose intercession we need for our salvation. Mary, our advocate, powerful to save. These, by the way, are verbatim quotes from the table of contents. Mary, the peacemaker between sinners and God. Mary, with the eyes of mercy. Mary rescues her servants from hell. Mary conducts her servants to paradise. Mary preserved from original sin, the immaculate conception. Mary, the treasurer of all divine graces. The assumption of Mary, where she ascended to heaven. Mary, the queen of martyrs. And I've just named a few. It's an 800-page book. It goes on and on and on. And I have to admit, I didn't read all 800 pages. But I read enough to recognize that the contents of the book are staggering. And also, the general feel of the book, and it's not just me, but it's other people who've written reviews on it, other pastors, is that Jesus, and this is kind of where this book goes, Jesus might be less inclined to be merciful. He might be more judgmental. So if you want him to respond, you need to talk to his mother. I mean, that, that's the way this book unfolds. Like, no, no, no. You, and, and some people will falsely say that Mary's in charge of Jesus and stuff. You know, I don't like it when people make an argument that's not actually valid. They're not arguing that, that somehow Jesus or Mary ascended above Jesus. But what they are arguing is Jesus is not going to disobey his mom if she makes a suggestion. So you need to talk to her. And it just reminded me of so many of our households, right, where we have one parent who's kind of the enforcer and the other parent who's kind of the advocate, right? And if you want something, who do you go ask? Right? You, go, you go ask the advocate. My kids ask me, right? I'm like such a soft touch. So what do I say? Go ask your mom. That's just great parenting, in case you don't know. So while I was reading that table of contents, maybe you were asking yourself, how are all these things biblically justifiable, right? I mean, because I, mean, I, I mentioned the few places Mary is mentioned in the Bible, you don't see anything like this. So you might be asking yourself, how is this biblically justifiable? Where in the Bible do we find this message? Are these messages? It would require such a skilled chiseler of Scripture to create this type of Mariology or Mariolatry from the Bible alone. I dare say you couldn't do it. There's no way you could come up with all the things written in this book, which, by the way, is endorsed by the Roman Catholic Church to this day. You're not going to find it if you just use the Bible. But, and this is where I think it's important for us to understand something, according to the doctrines of Rome or the Roman Catholic Church, it needn't be found in Scripture to be the authoritative teaching of the church. For the Church of Rome holds traditions, the magisterium, and popes and councils commensurate with the Bible. So they don't, their argument is you don't have to find it in the Bible. The church has spoken. And the church has authority equal to the scriptures. Now, I hope that 
I don't want to, I'm not here just to attack Roman Catholics or the Roman Catholic Church. What I'm telling you, if a, Roman, a knowledgeable Roman Catholic would not disagree with what I just said. What, what is your source for the information that you actually have about God? It can easily be argued, just a little bit of a history lesson. If I were to ask you, what do you think was the biggest deal about the Reformation? Now, maybe you've not heard of the Reformation. It happened on Halloween in 1517. Martin Luther, you know, pounded the 95 Thesis on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel, and, you know, and everything changed from, from that day on. And it, the Reformation wasn't something new. The argument would be that it was uh, refocusing on that which was old. We had lost that during... You know, the Middle Ages, you know, and not that the church wasn't entirely evil during the Middle Ages, but it went down and down and down, and then all of a sudden, you know, this Augustinian monk is like, this is a mess, and he didn't really even mean to start the Reformation. He was just going, we need to clean things up, and then they kind of attacked him, and then the great speech happened, and things changed, but if I were to ask, if I were to ask you, what was the biggest thing about the Protestant Reformation. Like, what is that which really made the difference? Well, we are studying this in our home group, and this is the idea of formal versus material principles in theology. And I think, again, this is in theology, but I think these are good terms for you to know, formal, formal versus material. What does that mean when people use that? Well, I'm going to give you an example. The Reformers argued vehemently that we find peace with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That was the material difference between what was going on and what happened. The formal dif difference was that our knowledge about God, this inerrant and infallible message from God, comes by the scriptures alone. So the big deal in the Reformation is, where are you going to find out the things that you know about God? Ultimately, infallibly, without the possibility of error, inerrantly, with no error in it, where do you go for that? I hope, I really do, whether it's me or some other pastor you're listening to, that you listen to us with your Bible opened, checking the scriptures daily to see if what we're saying is actually biblically justifiable. And that you're not just believing things because somebody behind a pulpit is saying it. We're given that responsibility. This great gift God has given to you, and that is either the Bible on your lap or the Bible on your little computer device. And some of you have that, and then you have the Greek and the Hebrew. Boy, you got a lot of responsibility. But that is the difference. The difference is where do we go for the infallible message, the inerrant message? <clears throat> well, I'm not, I'm not opening with this to just, you know, critique Roman Catholicism. I, I, I love my Roman Catholic friends. I'm on good terms with most of them. 
It is funny, you know, how Protestant some of, most of my Roman Catholic friends are. Like, I'll go to their house, and they'll have books by R.C. Sproul on their shelf. Like, you know, you really shouldn't have that book on your shelf. I'm trying to make it seem like they shouldn't read it, so they'll read it. <laughs> but I mention this because the introduction to error has a twofold injury. We don't merely understand the passage incorrectly if we have all these ideas about Mary. We, at the same time, will fail to understand what the Spirit would actually have us know about Mary. You ever see, you ever watch, um, I love crime shows, and you know, lawyer shows. I love being in the courtroom drama. And, you know, when, when, um, when one group, one law firm who's really rich and they got a bunch of lawyers, they don't want the other little law firm to be able to figure out what's going on. So the little law firm goes, hey, we, not, we need all the necessary files. And the big law firm sends them like 500 boxes for, of information because they know they'll never get through it. They're going to look at this and look at this and look at this. I feel like that's what's happened with Mary. We've got an 800-page book on Mary, most of which you can't find anywhere in terms of biblical justification. And so we fail to really focus on what God would have us focus on when we read about Mary, the lowly maidservant. When, we, when, when we're reading about Mary, the co-redeemer, we lose focus on the Mary who's exhibiting joy in her own redemption. So the goal, I mean, the reason I start with this big, long introduction, because the rest of the sermon will be relatively short, is because I think we need to focus on that which God would have us focus on in terms of what he has emphasized in the Scripture. Luke 1, 39 and 40, we've got this visit that takes place. Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. Well, we're not specifically told whether Gabriel instructed Mary to take this trip. He did say, you know, your relative or your cousin Mary is, or Elizabeth with, uh, or Mary is with child. No, Elizabeth with child. And so, you know, Mary makes this trip. It's not going to be a short trip. Those kinds of trips were tough in those days. Perhaps in mentioning Elizabeth's pregnancy in the previous passage, he was hinting, maybe he was hinting, that she should visit her older cousin. But as I was studying this, and I'm looking at everybody's opinion, because I'm like, you know, where's the message here? I'm not an egalitarian. What that, what that means is I do think the Bible teaches that pastors and elders should be men. I'm a complementarian, right? Just so you know, because what I'm about to say may sound like I'm an egalitarian, and I'm not. But this is the disadvantage of having only men write books on the Bible. Because it's been my observation that women who are with child are generally pretty eager to meet with other women in the same condition. Yeah, I may be wrong at that, but, you know, we've had four kids, and I know when my wife was with child, she wanted to talk to other women who were also pregnant. To me, it's, a, it's kind of an easy thing. Mary's like going, oh, I'm pregnant, and now I have a cousin who's pregnant. Maybe I'll go see her. Now, these two women are not only pregnant, 
they're both involved in miraculous conceptions, albeit Mary's more miraculous because there's no human father at all. Well, I think we should note that even though it was Mary who would conceive the Savior, it was also Mary who took the trip. All right, so she goes to see Elizabeth. Why? Well, it's a guess, but maybe it was because she was younger. Maybe because she was newly pregnant. Or maybe she was providing an example of the servanthood that would be amplified in her own child in his redeeming of mankind. Nonetheless, it should be of no surprise that Mary would seek the wisdom and encouragement of an older woman. Perhaps Mary was counting on that which Paul would write later to Titus. Older women train the younger women. Um, I think that's a really important dynamic. We live in a we live in a church age that is very commuter oriented. As a church, we try to um, organize a lot of social events. You know, you might see like a game night, you know, announced, and you might be thinking, why are they announcing a game night? You know, they should announce ministerial things, not a game night or cookie night or you know, whatever we do. But we're not doing those things just for some activity. We're doing those things so that people can come and get to know each other, sitting across the table, have a conversation, get to know each other, and not just leave and not know the people. I mean, sometimes two people after church will walk up here who've gone to our church for over 10 years, and I jokingly will introduce them hey, have you met so-and-so? And I'm kidding, because you've been sitting there for 10 years, they've been sitting there for 10 years, and you don't know each other? And, they're like, and then they're like, oh, nice to meet you. And I'm like, you don't... We, we need to know each other. What was going on in Mary's mind that would compel her to go visit Elizabeth? I think Matthew Henry said it really well when he wrote that she, quote, yet longed to talk over a thing she had a thousand times thought over and knew no person in the world with whom she could freely converse concerning it but her cousin Elizabeth, and therefore she hastened to her. I, I do pray, looking around the room, that everybody in this room has an Elizabeth in their life. Or maybe you are an Elizabeth. And even if you are an Elizabeth, you need another Elizabeth. Who can you talk to? You got that stuff going on in your head, right? Somebody who you can confide in, somebody who you can be brutally honest with about your own shortcomings, your own needs, your own desires, your own, your own pain, the anticipation of difficulty, who you can sit down with somebody, even if it's one person, and go, let me explain to you what's going on in my head. Because Mary had that, and I would argue that's why she went to see Elizabeth. Verses 41 through 44, and it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? 
For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. When my kids were little, you know, and I'd, I had the office, my office was here at the church, and I'd be gone all day, and I'd come home and open the door, and they would just, like, attack me. Daddy! You know, they'd run, and, you know, they're all grabbing me around the leg, you know, legs, and I'm like... Then after a while, I started working in an office out of my house, and my kids grew up. And now I only get that greeting from Jack, my dog. <laughs> he seems to always be happy to see me. Yeah, I'm not complaining about my kids. I mean, my kids love me in, in a different way. They don't run. At this point, with their size, they'd probably injure me. <laughs> but I think excitement is an insufficient word to describe Elizabeth's reaction to the visit of her young cousin. So if you are an Elizabeth, by the way, be happy when you get that phone call, right? Be excited when the door is wrapped upon and you open it and it's the person who's looking to you, like, I am glad you're here. Have a seat. I heard a youth pastor, when I was a youth pastor, I heard this youth pastor years ago say something that to this day I've tried to emulate. And that was, you know, he was, in his, he was talking about he was in his office and he was working and studying and doing this and doing that. And he was super busy and one of the kids from his youth group kind of knocked on the door and came in, and he took all of his work and shoved it in the drawer, shut it, and started throwing a ball against the wall and catching it like he just had nothing to do. Because he didn't want that kid to feel like he was putting him out. Hey, I'm free. Now, he wasn't free. But he, had to, he wanted to go, look at it, you're here, I'm free. And I, I, I felt like I really learned from that, to not make people who are depending upon me to think that I'm too busy to talk to them. And I think we all need to be that way. We need to be the kind of person that when, so, when you can tell that somebody's got something they want to share with you, that you turn and you look at them and, you know what, I'm not busy at all. What do you want to talk about? So we see this dynamic taking place. And when Elizabeth hears, and this is where it gets kind of crazy, when Elizabeth hears Mary's voice, the babe in her womb, who is John the Baptist, leaps for joy. I think, by the way, I think it's always worth noting that the baby in the womb, whether it's the baby Jesus or the baby John the Baptist, the Greek word for that is brephos. And the same word is used in the Greek later on when Jesus is in the manger in swaddling cloth. The point here is, with our current moral trends, we need to recognize that according to the scriptures, there's no difference between a born baby and an unborn baby. And we're going to see more of that in, in just a minute. What we have here is a spirit-filled response from mother and child to the yet unborn Jesus. The angel Gabriel, by the way, prophetically anticipated this when he was speaking to Zacharias earlier in this chapter. In verse 15, he says, speaking of John the Baptist, he will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Well, let me take a little, you know, 
we look at this and we might think, oh, that's a cute story. It's a Christmas story. But I just want to kind of take a little bit of a detour here and explain something. I believe that intellect is important. I think intellect, thinking, proper thinking, is, is critical. I think it is necessary if, and I'm saying if, I should be saying since, the Bible teaches faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ or the word of God. Since that's the case, we need ears and we need to understand words, right? I mean, there is, in some sense, where you're presenting something that's intelligible to a person who at some level understands what you're saying. But I do fear that we too often wish to reduce God to the limitations of these mechanics and our ability to observe them work, as if that's the only way God can function. I've got to be able to see it. I need to be able to, to, to evaluate it. Otherwise, God really can't do it. Routine criticism that I've heard over the years against infant baptism is that infants are incapable of intellectually grasping the gospel and, and responding in faith. You know, you're, you're, you're baptizing this baby. You see their ears, but you know they don't understand a word that you're saying, right? And not only do they not understand a word that you're saying, they certainly don't have the ability to respond in faith, at least as far as we can tell, right? We don't make the baby walk forward in an altar call or crawl forward. But clearly in this passage, babies, unborn babies can be what? It's right here, filled with the Holy Spirit. You realize how crazy that sounds? An unborn baby, a cell cluster, you know, John the Baptist, six months, so pretty fully developed. It was this thinking, and this is one of my favorite portions of the Westminster Confession that I'm about to read to you, that led the divines of Westminster to write this, which I think is, is eminently biblical. Chapter 10, paragraph 3, elect infants. This just came up in a discussion with one of my kids. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit who worketh when and where and how he pleaseth. You know, I mean, the four spiritual laws didn't exist in these days. It might be good if it didn't exist today. But it's going, they're kind of going, look at God does things the way he wants to do them. And then they actually go further than elect infants. So also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. So people, you know, who've got like handicaps, you know, their inability to, to think, to hear, and so forth. God is not restricted. God's going, wow, boy, we need to get a good ear surgeon. We need to kind of get them physically capable of participating in such a way. Otherwise, I can't help them. It's kind of the mentality we have. 
Well, where do they come with this? It's not just wishful thinking. They're not going, hey, we need to, some, we need to at least sound like there's some hope. No, it was by good and necessary consequence that they arrived at this conclusion that was deduced by Scripture. And let me give you a couple of Scriptures that would indicate why you would have to understand this this way. Psalm 22, 9 and 10. Yet you are he, talking about God, who took me, this is David, from when? From my mother's womb. All right, well, okay, maybe in some sense, but not, certainly not in the sense of faithfulness. But then he goes on. You made me trust you, where? At my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Do you think that we should view We have pregnant women in this church. They're unborn children. Should we? Now, I understand we don't don't have infallible knowledge, right? I'm not a prophet. I can't say you're saved, you're saved, you're, you know. But should we view, in light of these scriptures, the children in this church, even unborn children, as one of us? Well, we look at Psalm 71.6. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. What does that look like? What does it look like when an unborn baby leans upon God? You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. Now, I just wanted to introduce that so that we have kind of an understanding of the way God works and what's going on in the encounter between these two women. I do agree 100% with Dr. Sproul in his lecture, Have You Lost Your Mind?, when he, when he lamented that we are living, so I'm saying this because I don't want you to take what I'm saying right now as if the entire Christian faith is unintelligible. We're just going to throw it, in, it out into the mud and whatever happens, happens. In that lecture, he said that we are living in, quote, the most anti-intellectual climate in the history of the church. I agree with that anti-logic, anti-ethics, anti-clear thinking is so predominant, one need merely endure the mindless and contradictory rhetoric of the political world. I know, I, I listen to these debates, I listen, you know, you hear a politician get up there and say stuff, and you're like, how in the world are we leaning on these people? What is going on in the mind of the citizen? that this is okay. You know, I always think of the Lincoln-Douglas debate, you know, seven hours they're on the stage debating. (laughs) We have debates. I have debates online, you know. And, you know, every once in a while somebody will text me or email me or whatever and go, hey, I listened to the debate. And I'll look online and the debate's like two and a half hours long. I'm like, you listened to that whole debate? Most of them are like, well, no, you know, I fast-forwarded this or that, but... The few who did, I'm like, wow, I should send you a bunt cake. Because <laughs> I, I know, I'm going to guess you're like me. If, you, if, if, if something pops up in your feed, like a video, and it's more than three or four minutes, you're not going to hit it. If something pops up and it's like 47 minutes, 
Yeah. Is there some place where it's shorter? We, uh, we definitely live in one of the most anti-intellectual ages in church history. The way this works, you, you guys, are you familiar with postmodernism? Is that term ring a bell? Postmodernism, not to get into the details here either, but you know, there was there were the modernists, you know, the these the you know the, the, the scientific age, the modern man, you know, who's able to figure stuff out. Which 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 had its own demons, by the way, this idea that we don't need God because we can figure things out. Well, you talk about a house divided, so in postmodernism, the new thinker is like, you guys, we can't trust you because you really can't figure things out. And so there is no truth. There is no logic. There is no absolute ethic. The postmodernist is kind of going, none of that exists. Of course, by the way, no postmodern thinker lives as if postmodernism is true. Right? All you have to do is go in and try to rob their house before they say, hey, that's wrong. And you're like, well, wait a minute, you're a postmodernist. How can you say it's wrong? Is it absolutely wrong? Or is it just kind of wrong in your opinion? But that, they, they are in strong stride. They have taken our culture, and they're working their way into the church. And all you have to do, you know, I'm lamenting the politician. All you have to do is look at the top 10 largest churches in America, and you'll find the same thing. I, I listen to what's being said, and then they pan the audience of 40,000 people. And I'm like, they look like people who run businesses. They look like people who were at least able to afford a suit. How are they believing what's being said? How are they not a little bit more discerning and critical of these things? So I do think we need to engage our minds full force in terms of understanding what God would have us understand. Yet, and I say all that, yet, let us not respond to that error by seeking to reduce God to a formula that fits within the boundaries of our creaturely minds. Because now we've gone too far. Now we're going, no, I, gotta, I need to know everything there is to know about God. And let me tell you something, you never will. Not here and not in heaven. You'll never get to the end of the wisdom and the love and the grace of God because he is the creator and you are the creature and we will be the creatures forever an incomprehensibility is a glorious attribute of God. Now let me just say here, the uncatechized, unbaptized, unevangelized, and unborn John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit. And somehow, when Mary spoke, he, he leaped. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we evangelized, baptized, and catechized Christians, <laughs> would do a little leaping. I I remember when you know, you know we've got you got kids who are young and you know and they're raised you know they're raised in the church. And I remember when my kids got to the age where they found out there were people in this world who didn't believe in God. And they were so amazed and put off. They're like, Daddy, you know, I met so-and-so, and they don't believe in God. Like, it was like, what in the world? How could they be? What? 
you know, and then all of a sudden you get a little older and you realize, well, there are a lot of people like that. And instead of being stunned and heartbroken and put off, because the Bible says if you don't believe in God, it is the ultimate folly, right? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. We begin, they get a little older, and you begin to kind of live with it. I, w I wonder sometimes when Jesus looked at the little babies and the children and said, the kingdom of God's like them. Because it wasn't because they were innocent. I guarantee you some of them were crying. Some of them were making a fuss. The Bible clearly teaches that. I'm sure Jesus knew his Bible pretty well. But, when he, but what they also had was a dependence upon their parents. This trust, that's where they would go. And, and this idea that you would not have that would be horrifying. R.J. Rushdoony wrote a book called the, um, what's it called? Institutes of Biblical Law, I think it was called. Is that it? Institutes of Biblical Law. He, he had an interesting comment about um, the media. And by the media, I'm talking about movies. And what he, you know, he was part, he was, he was Armenian and he was very acquainted with what happened in Armenia, the genocide attempt, and, and that fact that the church had no answer for that type of evil in a culture. And so he was really aware of that, you know, that when you extract God, then people can do whatever they want. They can do evil things. And what he, what he concluded was in the movies, We've created this entire world where there is no God. And he's like, it's horrifying that there's an entire world with stars that we could name and know that are functioning, stories that are functioning, stories that have a theme and a moral, but they're all functioning as if there is no God. He found it horrifying. Children who are raised in the church find it at very least kind of hard to grasp and should find it horrifying. But as we get older and we get influenced by the world, it's not as horrifying to us as it really should be. Well, this is long before Pentecost, right? This is 30 years, 33 years before Pentecost, yet Elizabeth here is filled with the Holy Spirit. And Elizabeth then begins an accurate, biblical, and apparently, according to the text, and i got to mention it because it's in the text, loud, Mariology. You want to know Mariology? Elizabeth's going to give it to us here. Initially, she announces that Mary is blessed. She also announces that the fruit of her womb is also blessed. These are the utterances of a woman filled with the Holy Spirit, so we deem that they are accurate, and we generally take the idea of being blessed as a good thing, right? If I were to say, who in the room wants to be blessed? Right? There you go. We want one person. <laughs> but blessedness here is not the same word in the Beatitudes. These are two different words. The blessedness here. It's where we get the English word eulogy. Eulogy means to speak well, right? That's what it really means. And so, and so the, it's this idea that you're going to be spoken well of. You're going to be honored. You're going to be celebrated. Now, let me just say, you know, a minute ago, I kind of said, Mary is not all of this, but 
Mary may not be everything that Rome says she is, but she is accurate when she says all generations, including our generation, will call her blessed. So we should have that at very least when we think of, of Mary. But Mary and the fruit of her womb, even though they have this blessing, this high praise, will not find that this blessing results in a comfortable journey. If I were to say to you, do you want to be blessed? And you said yes, and then I said, okay, here's where that blessing is going to lead. Because it's not the same blessing as in the Sermon on the Mount. It's going to be a different blessing, and that is your name's going to be lifted up. And Mary, you know what? What's included in this, as we'll see soon, is that your heart will be pierced. This child in your womb will be called blessed, but that child will endure the wrath of God. So sometimes the blessing of God, the high praise, the esteem, does not mean things are going to be easy. As a matter of fact, I would argue that in the course of history, it's just the opposite. That those who would open their mouths and seek to praise the Most High God are going to find themselves in enmity with the culture in which they live. And, and America has kind of been an exception over the last couple of hundred years, but we're moving in the other direction now. And I dare say, there's every effort to humiliate anybody who would actually open their mouth to somehow put forth this antiquated notion that there is a God who sent his son Jesus Christ to save sinners. You're not going to find yourself the most popular person in the party if you start saying things like that. But Mary, and we'll finish with this, and some people will view this as an insult. I don't, think, I don't think Mary would view it as an insult. I think it's clearly biblical. Mary, like any other sinner, including you and me, will be blessed because she believed. Blessed is she who believed. It's faith. That word is faith. Mary was justified by faith. Just like Abraham, right? He believed God and therefore he was accounted righteous. Mary believed that which God said and therefore she will be blessed. She will be accounted righteousness. Why? For there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. It was the faith of Mary in the faithfulness of God that, like every other saint in Scripture and history, brought true peace and redemption to her soul. And I do pray it's true for you as well. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would recognize this wondrous act on your part. We do pray, Father, that we would imitate both Elizabeth and Mary as we see how they engage the ministerial task put before them and that if things are uncomfortable, that we would not turn to the left or to the right, but we would ever have faith and that we would walk faithfully because we serve a faithful God in Jesus' name. Amen.